Welcome to the online broadcast. I'm Curry Hendrick. And I'm Brett Johnson. And we're both anti-fraud experts. But with very different sets of experiences. I've been in the anti-fraud space for well over a decade, working with hundreds of the biggest online companies in the world to help them prevent payment fraud. And prior to several years ago, I was a fraudster. I committed several different types of fraud online, ended up on the United States Most Wanted list, spent time in prison, and since that point, I've dedicated my career to helping businesses and consumers protect themselves against people like I used to be. Today, I think that we have a very special treat for you guys. We've alluded to this for couple weeks now, <laughs> we finally not only interviewed, but recorded an interview with my friend Brett's you know, newer friend, Kevin Lee, who currently works for SIF Technologies, which was SIF Science up until recently. And we are recording this intro before, or after we did the interview. So we know how good it is. Uh, really looking forward to you guys listening to it. Brett, do you have any thoughts about that before we oh, I uh, think it's dive into it? It's going to be outstanding. I will say that, you know, we had a couple of attempts that fell through. <laughs> it was just practice. It was dress rehearsal. Is that what it was? All right. Yeah. <laughs> just unintentional dress rehearsal. <laughs> so, third time's a charm. Right. <laughs> should work well. You verified it recorded. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Well, we hope you guys enjoy it and we will wrap it up at the end. And then please do let us know. This is a little bit of a different format. So we'd love to hear if you want to hear more interviews like this or what, but really just enjoy listening to another fraud veteran and his perspective on working with so many big companies. All right. So we are super lucky to have my friend Kevin Lee with us today. His official bio is that he's the trust and safety architect at SIFT Technologies. He's worked for the last 14 plus years around developing strategies, tools, and teams responsible for billions of users and dollars of revenue. Prior to SIFT, Kevin worked as a manager at Facebook, Square, and Google, where he's led several risk chargeback collections and spam organizations. So going a little bit off the script, I've known Kevin since he was at Square. He had been at Google prior to that. I think we really connected because we are at similar points in our career. We have been. We've kind of grown through this industry over the last eight years that we've known each other or so. And I think we both have shared passions, both for protecting companies and also educating merchants as well. I also have to really, really thank Kevin for bearing with us because <laughs> this is the third time. Third time's going to be the charm this time. We I mentioned it on the last podcast. We just had technical difficulties with our editing software um, that connected to Skype. We've now learned the hard way that we need to restart our computer any pretty much any time and every time we before we do it because it doesn't tell you when it has an update. <laughs> it just lets you know. It makes it look like it recorded, but it didn't afterwards. So we're good now. So And if I can, if I could just point out, I am not at fault for every single episode of that. I mean, I was at fault no. for, for one of them. <laughs> no. Oh, absolutely. No, I wasn't even implying. Like, no, no, no. Arguably, I, arguably, I could be at fault of the other one because I did not tell you how to set up that, that recording <laughs> software correctly. I mean, arguably. No, it was user error on my end. No, no, no. I will, I will own it for sure. I think plenty of blame goes around even, say, like yeah. everything. No, I certainly wasn't meaning to throw you under the bus. No, no. I'm just, I'm like the Lee Harvey Oswald of Skype recordings. You know, <laughs> it's just bad to begin with. <laughs> oh. Okay. All of this to say, let's 
welcome for Kevin on the phone. All right. Thank happy you so to be much, here. Kevin. Of course. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> Are you sure you're happy to be here after all this? <laughs> Definitely. Ready to rock. <laughs> so, you know, we want we've been wanting to have you on for some time now. It's literally probably been like six months. And every time we talk about it, the focus kind of changes because you do have 14 years of experience and working for literally, you know, some of the biggest companies in the world, um, we could pick your brain for hours. And so, you know, at first it was going to be, let's dive into his experience at Facebook, because as we all know, there's a lot in the news about Facebook right now and has been for the last you know year or so. And more than that, that's also, you know, something that Brett and I have talked about before in the past, but then it's kind of changed and morphed and grown and, and really, we just kind of want to pick your brain for an hour because you have a lot of awesome experience. <laughs> sure, happy to do it. So let's dive in a little bit to your career on the merchant side. Can you provide some background into what you did, a little bit more detail into what you did for Google, Square, and Facebook? Sure, of course. Um, so I, when I first started out in the business, I actually wasn't even in the business yet. I was actually in ad sales at Google and my primary objective was to get the most bang for my customer or in this case, the advertisers, uh, buck and every so often, meaning every week or so I'd end up getting phone calls or emails from people saying, Hey, I have a $500 charge on my credit card for Google advertising. What's that about? And I have to explain to them, oh, it looks like your credit card is compromised. You need to contact your bank and go through these steps. And I, to be honest, hated taking those phone calls because one, the customer or the cardholder was upset at Google for uh, letting this happen. Two, it's not something I could really resolve. I just had to push the problem towards someone else. And uh, that didn't feel very good to me either. And so when an opportunity popped up on the risk team at Google, I jumped on it. So started doing more advertising-related fraud, like click fraud stuff. That also included uh, stolen credit cards and things like that. That eventually morphed into some other roles within Google, uh, specifically around Google Checkout. So at this point, in present day, it's called Google Wallet. So the early kind of formation of that product is something I worked heavily on specifically from a, a fraud standpoint. And then uh, did that for several years, enjoyed that tremendously, and then uh, decided to move to Square. And for those of you that aren't familiar, Square is a, essentially a payments processor. And uh, at that point, started managing the risk team, the chargebacks team, and the collections team. So uh, basically trying to be the gatekeeper when it came to uh, dispersing funds to obviously legitimate folks wanted to uh, get those paid out as soon as possible and then really look for any type of merchant related fraud where the most common schemes would be uh, fraudsters creating merchant accounts and then uh, cycling through stolen credit cards or uh, money laundering was also an issue as well. And then at Facebook, uh, that was my most recent role prior to joining SIFT. Uh, headed up the global spam team. And so the mission there was really around protecting both newsfeed uh, on, on Facebook and also Instagram from things like malware, spam, scams, um, and other types of malicious behavior. And there's really two ways that that can happen. One is through the proliferation of fake accounts, and the other one is through account takeovers. And so my team's charter was really to keep the platform safe from uh, that type of behavior. 
So you were a busy man. <laughs> a little bit, a little, but I had a great team around me. So luckily didn't have to shoulder the burden all alone. Right. <laughs> well, and as you were talking about like your experience and stuff, I remember the first time I ever like went to see you at your office. And I think I was in San Fran for something else. I don't know, for work or something, but because of my role at MRC, we emailed back and forth a lot. So I stopped by and it was like in the original square office before you guys moved into the fancy one that shared the yeah. building with Uber. Like it was it was a scrappy startup. But I do remember I went on a Tuesday and I got to see, run into Jack Dorsey and then like almost literally run into like as I was walking around a corner. And then that afternoon I went and saw our buddy Andrew at Twitter and he, Jack Dorsey was at Twitter that afternoon because apparently Tuesdays was his day to like walk around and I don't know. No, that's a busy man. Shake hands, kiss babies. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, I just remember thinking like, oh, that's a handsome guy for Silicon Valley, you know, for tech. <laughs> and it was, you know, at that point too, he was quite the mythical unicorn. He was getting a lot of, of buzz and stuff. So. We've known each other a long time, and it's been awesome to be able to, you know, see your career trajectory grow and see you go from, I think you and I have had similar paths where we started out as merchants, and we just really loved the industry so much that we wanted to help on a bigger scale and bigger level. So now, you know, now that you're working kind of at a 10,000 foot view with so many merchants at SIFT, it's just been fun to see that. Likewise. Oh, yeah, I know. We both have had a lot of changes in the last, like, five or six years. What advice do you have for our listeners that, going back to Facebook just a tiny bit, because that was your most recent position, and they're in the news and popular a lot. What advice do you have for our listeners that are on Facebook or Instagram or have their kids on them to stay safe from fraud and other trust and safety issues? I know that that could be two-hour podcast in itself, but... Yeah. <laughs> The high-level advice, because I'm sure, like me, you get asked that all the time from people in your lives as well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'd say from a, an adult standpoint, really, the the thing I recommend is, one, knowing what how your data is being used. And that can be somewhat confusing sometimes because very few people actually read the terms of service. But actually, if you Google it in terms of what are, let's say, Facebook what, how are they using my information? There's actually some more succinct articles on what exactly they do with it, how they do, how they do what they do as well. From a more practical application day to day, certainly when it comes to things like account takeovers, like people are unfortunately have pretty poor password hygiene and they do tend to share their passwords across sites and things like that. But if Facebook is something they use quite often and the information on there is, is quite sensitive or personal, and those passwords are being used across different sites, I would definitely recommend using a password manager or something like that to, uh, to change that up. Also, from a user perspective, you really want to take a look at your privacy settings in terms of what's being shared and how it's being shared. Facebook has actually come quite a long way in this regard in terms of how much information is uh, shared and to who. So you have a lot more power as a consumer on where you want your information to be posted. And that, that wasn't always the case. It used to be pretty much on full blast and anyone could do some searches and find out information about you. Uh, that's not the case anymore if you don't want it to be. And then from a children perspective, the most kind of concerning thing there is around cyberbullying and 
I think back in the day, parents would talk to kids about the birds and the bees. Like that's still certainly a relevant discussion, uh, but certainly around s- cyber hygiene is also really uh, important now. Because when it comes to things like cyber bullying, that stuff doesn't stick. That doesn't stop at at uh, when you come home from school and things like that. It can be a twenty four seven occurrence, and so having that conversation with your your kids in terms of who they're interacting with and how they're interacting with them is really, really crucial to have. Thanks so much for that. I think that that's really helpful because a lot of times people don't, even people in fraud and security, I feel like we have a pretty good sense of the information that is captured and tracked and all of that, but we don't always know specifics about the platforms that we use ourselves. That's super helpful. You know, I know that you, when you were at Facebook, just one more thing to point on that. I know that you oversaw spam operations and that means a lot of things, but you did oversee them during the U.S., the last U.S. presidential election, which I know from knowing you as well as just, I can only assume that there was a lot going on behind the scenes uh, in your role several months leading up to that, as well as um, I believe you left about three, four weeks after the election ended. And and I've always just made the assumption that that wasn't a coincidence. You know, it's well publicized that Facebook played a role in the outcome, right? And I guess I've always, now that we've got you on a recording, uh, was the timing of you. <laughs> you knew it was coming. Though. I told, I, I cleared this from you with you way in advance. I would never put you on the spot. But was the timing of this, of you leaving a coincidence? And what can you say about that time? Because I do feel like other than just general curiosity, I think that there's a lot that our listeners can learn from you about having a crisis of conscience possibly or you know when is the right time to leave or what is your role in it and and all of that so i think that would be really helpful for you to kind of share what you can about that time yeah of course i think when i look back at my time at facebook obviously a lot of it was dominated by the u.s presidential election so uh the presidential election cycle seems to start early and earlier each time but uh during my time there, certainly that was a big topic, uh, and it created a lot of divisiveness within the company at times, just because there were comments made by some candidates at the time, and they were pretty divisive, and uh, I'd say many folks, if that same comment was made by not a presidential candidate, those comments would have been taken down for violating the community standards around hate speech. Uh, however, given the profile of the person and kind of the stage that it was on, the company elected to keep a lot of that stuff up rather than remove it. Super tough call. There are pros and cons to both in terms of enabling that to continue. That did create a lot of strife internally, though, just because many people around the company got a little bit disillusioned when uh, they heard that the company was moving this direction versus another. And that caused a lot of discontent on many levels. We had uh, every Friday, Zuck, the CEO, would have kind of these town hall style meetings. And uh, as we got closer and closer to the elections, uh, that began to dominate more and more of the, the conversations. One thing to note, though, in terms of the actions that happened from a political scale, uh, certainly 
U.S. elections, the spotlight is pretty darn bright, certainly within the U.S., because that's where we are, so it's top of mind, but also globally, right? But in terms of that kind of behavior and that type of divisiveness, it's been seen in other elections prior to the U.S. election, but it certainly never got the same hoopla and attention just because it wasn't in our kind of main purview or, or bubble. But ultimately, what kind of drew me away from Facebook was an opportunity at SIFT. The The mission of SIFT really resonated with me in terms of democratizing the different tools, uh, specifically fraud tools out there, to give everyone a shot to uh, prevent bad stuff from happening on their platforms. Truth be told, I'm actually not that worried when it comes to Facebook with regards to, sure, they're in the bad press cycle right now. Yes, they are getting hit pretty hard by uh, bad actors on the system, but Facebook has the money, the resources, the people to do okay. They're going to be, they're, they have a, a large uphill battle to face, but I think they'll come out stronger on the other end. It's going to take some time to, to heal and to uh, recover, but they'll be okay. What I worry more about, oh, go ahead, Brett. No, no. What I was kind of wondering is, okay, so you've, you've got a huge platform like Facebook and you've got, uh, I don't, you know, I don't care what side of the election you are, if you're right wing, left wing, but regardless, you've got governments trying to influence the, the, the platform and the people that are using the platform. You've got uh, criminals that are trying to do that. You've got uh, the, the right wing, white supremacist, whatever you want to call them out there doing that. The people on the left wing trying to do it at the same time. So, so how on earth, I mean, and I, I'm down on Facebook a lot. I mean, I really am. But with all those actors in there trying to, to influence everyone else, how, does, how do you go about establishing that proper line of trust within a company like that? Yeah, it's extraordinarily difficult just because you, uh, when it comes to that type of behavior, uh, certainly you can look for spam. So if you have someone or a bot or a script creating multiple accounts and uh, spreading content, whether whatever the topic may be, that's something that we or Facebook can detect from an uh, anomaly detection standpoint. However, if that gets caught by or seen by real people and they start sharing those same stories sure. because they honestly believe it, that's really where the snowball effect can become quite damaging. And that was actually one of the most troubling or challenging aspects of Facebook where you'd have legitimate people broadcasting essentially misinformation. And that became much, much harder to police and take down and, and take action on. Uh, so, and at that point in, in Facebook's mind, we had lost. Like if it gets to that point where people are sharing this type of information, Yes, of course, we want to take action, but we actually need to take action much, much sooner than that. And so, so, so it, and we know it does get to that point uh, a lot of time. A lot of time it doesn't, but a lot of time it does finally get to the point where sh people are sharing those fake stories like that. So, at that point, do you just kind of let that wave ride, or do you do you just try to remove it and then upset everyone who thinks it's true? I mean, I mean, it just seems it seems yeah. like one heck of a mess. There's a few different levers that Facebook can pull. So. One of them is around downranking or somewhat obscuring information. So the premise of this is not, it's not that the information is not found. Uh, so if you were to do a search for something that you posted or anyone is depending on your privacy settings, people would be able to find it. But the difference would be, let's say on Facebook, you say you got en engaged to someone or you, you had a, 
uh, you're in a new relationship. Typically, that gets broadcast more prominently, prominently to all your friends or followers. Sure. Uh, but if you start posting a particular article that may be incorrect uh, or the system or Facebook doesn't quite know how to make heads or tails of it yet, then from a prevalence standpoint, it might not be blasted out to all of your friends, the top of their news feeds. So that's one area that can be kind of uh, played with a bit. The other area is around detect, uh, Facebook is starting to employ uh, more third-party content moderators. So specifically when it comes to news and other types of events, they are actually combing through this information and doing their own verification checks. And if that information is not true, then they can take action and take it down. Um, they've also launched another feature in terms of different perspectives. So the one of the challenges of Facebook is the things that you like, Facebook will start serving up more of that stuff for you to see. And that can create somewhat of an echo chamber. Facebook has now introduced a little bit more perspectives into the mix. So if you want, as a user, there is that ability to actually look at different viewpoints. Let's say we're talking politics. And so the users can engage with that as well. Okay, gotcha. So going back to, I just want to make sure that you got to finish your thought. And it it's no, no big deal. I'm certainly not trying to pick on Brett at all. It's so hard sometimes when we're recording this. And we're all three in different geographies of like knowing when the other person is done talking. So <laughs> it's not a day on Brett. But I really wanted to make sure that you finish your thought. Because I think it's really interesting where you were going with that. Where you're not worried about Facebook because you feel like, they're going to be fine. They have the money. They have the resources. They have the people. You and I both know some awesome people that are, are there currently and still there from when you were there in trust and safety and payments and everything like that. You decided to shift your your career to go from you know being a merchant on the operational side to helping other merchants at a company that provides technology for fraud prevention. And I, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that decision. Yeah, so... One of the things that I came to realize at, at working at a company like Facebook or, or Google or Square was that when we'd come across a particularly tough adversary, we eventually would crack the nut and we, we would turn the tides. Um, but what I also realized was once we did that, th those fraudsters or scammers out there, they weren't retiring or, or giving up. They would just go to another platform, essentially. And to me, I thought that was incredibly unfair where, okay, I can protect the gates of, of Facebook or Google, but what about the next guy and the next guy after that? And so that's another thing that prompted me to join SIFT where the, the, the mission of SIFT was or is to be the, the trust layer of the internet. And so we want to empower all these medium-sized, actually, uh, and oftentimes enterprise-grade companies as well, against this type of malicious behavior because it's not their bread and butter. It's not something that they want to invest in or they even know how to quite invest in yet. And so they use tools that SIFT provides to help protect not only their customers, but also themselves against this type of malicious behavior. And that's something that I could really get behind as a professional in this industry. I can definitely you know, relate to that as well. I didn't necessarily take the vendor path, but same kind of thing, right? We both want, I want to democratize education and knowledge in this space. Um, and you want to democratize technology and the resources. And and I think it's a true testament. You got to, you got to work for 
the companies with the biggest budgets, right, in this space. And you realized, wow, like, <laughs> it's not easy even with the biggest budgets, but it's easier than other merchants I'm talking to at conferences and things like that. And wouldn't it be nice to have everyone be able to use things like machine learning, um, for example, which is very expensive and requires a lot of developers to create it in-house in yourself. Yeah, <laughs> so, it's a costly investment. Right. But, uh, and if it doesn't necessarily line up with your company's mission, then it's always going to be tough to get additional resources for that. A- absolutely true. And I feel like by now, 20 minutes in or whatever it is, our listeners have realized that you are an extremely like thoughtful person. I think I, I'm a, I always enjoy talking to you because you're just very like intentional with your words and your thoughts and your actions. And I know that every career decision you've made, you've given a lot of thought to. It hasn't been like a, a knee-jerk reaction. And you've been very strategic about it, like looking at it from from your career path or so to speak. So where I'm getting at is a few weeks ago, you and I were talking about something else completely different. I know that doesn't narrow it down because we talk fairly often in text too. But And you were talking about when you make a decision to change jobs. And you said something that I just thought was so smart, but I can't remember exactly what it was. But you were saying how like you try to challenge yourself when you're going into a new role. Does it is this jogging your memory? Yeah. So I think <laughs> I think where I was going in that comment or discussion was one of the things I try to do as a I'll put it this way, at the highest level Risk and trust and safety is my passion. It's my career. I'm going to work on this thing as long as possible. And in order to do that well, uh, I have to continue to evolve and continue to learn. One of the personal kind of traits that I try to push on is this this concept of, of ever better. And there's always these things that I think can be learned, can be honed, and can be uh, improved to essentially hone my craft, which is the the trust and safety space. And so when I started off early on my career, it was very driven on payment fraud, specifically buyer-side payment fraud. Uh, Then that morphed into more peer-to-peer economies, so buyer or seller types of fraud. Moved into other things like compliance. When I moved over to Facebook, it was more so around spam, scam, and malware. So it wasn't I actually left or departed the the payment fraud space, um, but I wanted to learn more about just general online types of abuse uh, and uh, things that could happen in that realm. And so I wanted to, I didn't know that much about spam, but I wanted to essentially learn more because it's part of that entire ecosystem. And so anything that I try and spend my time on, I really want to make sure that is part of the, the broader story of if I want to really become an expert in this field, that's going to require me to learn new things that might be a little bit more uncomfortable or uh, outside of my strike zone. But I think it's important to become a more well-rounded person in this field. Mm, I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, I think I've said this many times before, but whenever 
I meet somebody who claims that they are that they have a best in class fraud team or they know everything or that, you know, all these things. That's the second that Brett's usually telling me that their company is being hit with fraud really hard and it's going through just fine. Um, <laughs> that, that literally sounds like I just pressed a laugh track on like a great a morning DJ radio show. I'm just saying. Jeez. I'm just saying. <laughs> the quiet, creepy guy in the corners. <laughs> just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's usually when as soon as somebody says like, I know everything about fraud, risk, trust and safety, you know, all the things in the umbrella. That's the second that they keep their eye off the ball because the, something that I love about this industry is that I never stop learning. Um, it's challenging. Sometimes it would be nice for me to be like, oh, okay, I know this. Like, And definitely over the years, I mean, you and I have almost exactly the same number of years under our belt in this industry. Like, You get more and more confident and you get easy. It, it gets easier to be like, oh, okay, this type of business model probably has this type of fraud and whatever. But I'm constantly learning about new fraud tactics and new technology and and new things. And I think that that's a reason why we get along, but also why I think we've been pretty successful in our careers is because we're continuing to learn all the time. I met somebody yesterday at a coffee shop and he was in internet security of all things. So, you know, talking a lot about that, but he said something about, he heard the phrase, you know, as opposed to a know-it-all to be a learn-it-all like so somebody who wants to learn all the time they apparently there's a term learn it all and i was like i i feel like i'm kind of a learn it all um i'd much rather be a learn it all than a know it all <laughs> for sure I but i think that that's like i th i really wanted you to share that with people because i mean literally one of the top questions i get often and especially right now this time of year is you know people thinking about their career development and you know, what's next? And I feel like people mm -hmm. are varying on the skeptic on the spectrum of how intentional they are with that next step. Some people are just like, I need a job, I need any job. And that is fine. You know, that's, that's where they are. That's it. That's fine. But then there's others that are almost too cautious. And they're like, oh, I'm just gonna keep I'm miserable where I'm at, but I'm just gonna keep looking, <laughs> you know, for that perfect job. And I don't think there is a perfect job out there at all. I think that somewhere in the middle is maybe the right place to be. But I just know that there's a lot of people thinking about that right now. And I, I really liked what you said about that. And it kind of stuck in my head. So I'd well, sure. say one of the best pieces of advice, career advice I've been given hmm. was uh, actually from Cheryl Sandberg. So she's the COO at, at Facebook um, and career development and career trajectory uh, also comes up uh, in a lot of these kind of town hall discussions. And I thought she had a really good answer when it came to what your career should look like. And the way that she tried to portray it was that your career is essentially like a jungle gym or a playground. And there's all these different stations that you could uh, possibly work on. And maybe you do get to master the the monkey bars or something like that. But there's also the swings over there or... Mm some other thing on the playground that requires it's something new it's still on the playground it's still within the the ecosystem uh, but it's something additional to master and i really took that advice to heart where i wanted to essentially master as many different things on the playground as i could and so that's really followed me throughout the years and kind of guided me when i wanted to make uh, particular career changes or discussions or um, kind of uh, different events on that scale. Hmm. That's 
really good advice and a good uh, analogy and visual. And I think uh, that does align very much with what <laughs> what you've done in yeah. your career. And I'd um, say most, the most, most people I've met, the best people that I've worked with did not go straight up the corporate ladder or whatever. Mm. They didn't just become an expert in one thing and then move up one level, up one level. The best people I've worked with from a uh, problem solving standpoint, from an uh, execution standpoint, they've had the strangest jobs that's really (laughs) unrelated, but they, they've made it work and they actually take the lessons from each of those, those jobs. And then it's made them a, a better, certainly employee and partner, but also a person. You just get these new perspectives Mm. that you can take to your next position and make you better for it. Yeah, I would actually, to piggyback on that a little bit, I've definitely seen that as well. The people I know that I just think are like the best of the best, and you're obviously included in that, and Brett is as well, Ah. (laughs) in in different ways. I mean, I think his career path planning was a little different than ours, but... Talk um, about crazy jobs. Well, I got there. (laughs) (laughs) A little help from federal law enforcement, changing your, you know, your focus. True, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I mean, isn't that crazy, though? The three paths that we've taken and all three of us are on the same phone call. Like, whoa, (laughs) blow your mind there. But no, I mean, I think that, like, the people that I just think really get it and think outside the box and are scrappy and, and, you know, get stuff done. It are people who come from other perspectives, whether that's, you know, gender perspective, culture perspective, the issuer perspective, the acquiring perspective, the merchant, you know, like all the different sides or vendor and merchant, whatever it is, I think bringing additional perspectives to a problem, because we are in an industry that has no guidebook. And if we did have a guidebook, it'd be expired by the time it got published. And so we're in an industry that you continually have to kind of reinvent the wheel and try stuff out and throw stuff against the wall. And you need to have creative problem solvers at this stage in the game. Now, maybe in 20, 30 years, it'll be a little bit more structured, but we're not there yet. So I 100% agree with you. And I think that I've definitely had people in my lives, I mean, even some of my closest friends who really care the most about that next title, that next bump, whatever. And, And that's fine. That's a great path. But A, risk and fraud and trust and safety don't really have a clear career trajectory because again we're an emerging industry also like there's there are so many different to borrow cheryl's you know analogy there are so many different types of play toys on the playground under one big play playground in quotation marks of you know risk and fraud so transitioning from that like something i've noticed a lot more is trust and safety teams are taking over traditional fraud departments and you've done both and I think you kind of alluded to that evolution in your own career and I've definitely seen an evolution in the last five six years in e-commerce more often than not most trust and safety teams are in digital first companies can you kind of share the differences and similarities from those two because I know it's something you talk about a lot and something I think is really interesting yeah absolutely I think one of the primary causes for this change or this shift in the in the industry from a straight up fraud role to more of a trust and safety role is essentially the realization or recognition that the types of abuse that we have to deal with today is very different than it was, let's say, three years ago. And it's actually probably going to be very different than it will be three years and five years from now. So, for example, five years ago, let's say, Uh, the main pain point for a lot of businesses 
let's say, in e-commerce was around payment fraud. That was the acute problem that needed to get solved. And as a result, you create a, a risk team or a fraud team to hammer home on chargebacks, um, and which is fine. Uh, that's still a pain point today. But as the internet has really evolved and grown up, the types and the different ways that people interact on the platform have really, really, really changed. So if you think about companies like Airbnb or Twitter and other types of social media, where it's not just about a payment transaction anymore. Sometimes there's in this gig economy or the shared economy where you're not a consumer is not just buying from some big box retailer like Target. They might be buying from somebody, uh, a small mom and pop shop somewhere that they've never really met, but they really like their stuff on Etsy. Um, how do I trust who that person is? Uh, yes, there's going to be a, a transaction going on, but maybe what if there's a conversation going back and forth? What if there's uh, some spam or malicious content in that 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 realm. Uh, then you have to deal with things like account takeover. People are moving more and more of their identities online. And because of that, they become either they or these companies that are storing all this data become targets for, for harm. And so now when there's a compromise, it's, I mean, if you get your credit card compromised, it's relatively easy to get your money back the, the probably the most painful portion of this is like calling up your cell phone company or whoever has the automatic billing to like update your credit card number that's probably the biggest pain in the butt but otherwise you're going to be fine but if all of your data uh, whether these conversations or life events are also on there it becomes much much more painful to recover from and so as a result fraud teams don't get it or they they their purview is too narrow and as a result you need a little bit more of a holistic approach where we need to look at the entire user journey there are so many different types of abuse that we're responsible for or that can happen on our platform that we need a team to, not only to enable trust on the platform uh, but also keep our users safe take for example like the airbnb where they have to deal with not only digital trust and safety when it comes to credit card payments or conversations and things like that, but also physical safety where if you have someone going into your home and spending the night, uh, there's a lot of potential risk there. Same goes for ride-sharing apps like Uber or Lyft. And so the game has really changed for our industry. Um, and as a result, our responsibilities, our purviews, and our, our charters to the companies that we work for have also changed. And so uh, that shift or that that rebranding is the result of kind of the shifting landscape. I think that that was a really good overview of it. I think especially as I think there's a lot of other things at play as well. Like for the longest time at the beginning of my career, it was all about fraud, 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 getting the chargebacks down, getting the chargebacks down. And then there was an evolution of, okay, we've gotten these pretty good because there's a lot of great technology out there that, you know, is available now to be able to help merchants. They they were on their own for you know better or worse for several years before that. And so now we need to look at false positives, right? And then mm -hmm. after looking at false positives, then it kind of has evolved to now there's all these other things, especially for companies that are platforms, digital platforms that provide goods and services in the real world. I spoke with one of the former heads of fraud at Uber about a year and a half ago at a conference and he was talking about you know just the shift from the digital impacting the physical world and how that's completely different than online 10 years ago 
You couldn't just get into a stranger's car and, you know, pay and not ever give them any form of payment while you're in their car 10 years ago. Well, maybe to maybe 10 years ago, but like it was just starting and everyone thought it was crazy. You know, you couldn't just go stay in a stranger's house and have them paid magically off site. Like, (laughs) you know, all these things. But then there's so many other things that come into that. The damage to somebody's house that could happen, the illicit activity that could happen. I mean, I was just talking to somebody that used to work for one of the companies there's you know there's a few companies where you can stay at somebody's house or or rent long-term places and they were saying that they are they before they left that company were seeing those places being used as drop addresses oh yeah which you know obviously brett knows all about but i mean you know that then is like a triangulation of trust safety fraud everything because now you know well gosh is, is the merchant of record you know that's facilitating the stay are they the ones that are responsible for that or is it the merchant who's you know shipping items to that place unknowingly like there's so much there but at the end of the day the other piece of it is you know that trust part right like once there's a headline saying that something happened at one of these companies or you know using the platform which stuff's always going to happen, right? But like, you know, an Uber driver gets in a car accident or there's, you know, those kind of things. Well, then the overall trust is lost and needs to be repaired. I think that I like where it's headed. I have to say that. I mean, it's taken a bit of a transition in my brain. And I've always been the first to admit that I left, you know, the operational side of the industry before it transitioned to trust and safety. So this is more of a blind spot to me, but that's why I have... I know you and hopefully you're not regretting me having your cell phone number, but you know, text you every once in a while with questions. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> it's a, it's a brand new field for many, many folks. And uh, I think it's a, an exciting time because as a p- person that was formerly in, in risk and fraud, it's presents more opportunity, more responsibility and essentially a, a seat at the table where you're moving from a role that's, traditionally more back office like okay just do your thing in the corner to something that now requires you to be in product discussions to talk about okay how is this product or feature going to impact our users we of course it's table stakes when it comes to reducing abuse on the platform whether they're chargebacks or spam or account takeovers like yes that's definitely something that will not go away however it needs to be also taken in line with things like false positives and insult rates. Like you cannot be so draconian or have so many rules in place where it's like, all right, everybody is shady and we want to stop them all. I think that's one thing where many fraud teams get caught up where mm-hmm. they lose this, they lose sight that really 99 plus percent of the population on your platform is legit. Right. And what are the things that we can do as a company to get those consumers from A to B as quickly as possible. How can we create that Amazon one-click functionality within our own system? And the way to do that is by building out a, a strength and building out that trust and safety muscle, where you, of course, want to apply that friction to that sub-1% of the population that's trying to do harm, but you cannot apply that same hammer across the board. Like this is, We're talking more of a, a scalpel approach here. Yeah, do you feel like... Trust and safety teams have more of a seat at the table at those meetings because 
they actually have the trust of their team internally that they're not just looking for the bad guys and shutting down orders. They're they're thinking about everything across the platform from a holistic perspective and that the company really understands that they're trusting, like that they have trust in them, that they're going to want the best for the company overall from a sales perspective, like getting rid of those false positives and all that, but also protecting that the users. But I think... I wonder if the even bigger reason why they're they have a seat at the table is also because trust and brand go hand in hand, right? I did not mean to rhyme, not even close. One hundred percent. Wow, but like you know, trust and and the brand of the company go hand in hand, right? So that's probably why they're listened to rather than a fraud team because we want the brand to continue. You know, if you're caring about the brand and you're caring about getting consumer trust. Those are dollar signs. And so then we want you at the at the table. Absolutely. One of my old coaches used to tell me trust is earned in drops and, and lost in buckets. So if you do have a breach or you do have a compromise or you are getting hit up with a lot of spam or payment abuse on your platform or on this particular platform, your consumers won't want to engage after a while. Like they're they're gonna lose faith in your particular product. And hey, the internet's a great place. There's a lot of choice out there now. I'm not bound by any miles or distance like that. Like I can literally get to where I want to go on my phone pretty easily. And so consumers have a lot of power in that regard. And so from a competitive advantage standpoint, that's how you can stand out as a business. So one example would be Square. So if we were to rewind back to 2009, about 10 years ago, Square, this is when Square launched. And the reason why Square was able to be somewhat successful is because at that point, the U.S. was getting out of a, a pretty big recession. Banks were pretty tight in terms of lending out credit. They didn't want to engage on uh, with these underbanked or underserved folks just because the risks were too high. So along came Square, and we said, hey, we are going to underwrite or represent all of these people, and we're going to enable them to use our product as quickly and easily as possible, and we're going to take on all the risk and reward of those transactions. And luckily it worked out quite well to the point where I think it was just last month, uh, Chase Bank at their uh, annual shareholders meeting, somebody asked a question to the CEO like, oh, what's uh, a missed opportunity out there? Mm -hmm. And he actually said, oh, well, we back in the day had an opportunity like taking credit cards is not a new thing and uh, serving the underbanked is not necessarily a new thing either. But the reason why Chase and other banks didn't go into this space was because of risk reasons. They, yeah. they, they couldn't control it. And so they decided not to move into that, that field. They also had just like archaic systems to manage risk and monitor risk from a processing side. Right. So they couldn't make that bet. Well, Whereas could, yeah. Square came in that was a lot more flexible and, you know, moldable and you guys could change a lot and you were able to adapt and build really from scratch, you know, the systems that the banks probably oh, yeah. could, would have done, but they couldn't because they had 30 years of code piled up, right? Yeah. So one of the things that, um, <laughs> that, that people like I used to be are really good at is seeing a system or, or, or a new service like Square or Swipe or what have you, it it comes out and really the first adopters, a lot of the first adopters are fraudsters. And I, I know Square was not immune to that. I mean, they got hit by Carter's pretty hard. So at what point did Square start to realize they had a problem and really start to batten down the hatches on that? 
So really early on from a uh, the, one of the first advisors that we had was Max Levchin. So he was one of the, the founders of PayPal. Uh, yeah. And he definitely knows his stuff when it comes to fraud and abuse. And he was he would come and talk to our, our risk team and fraud team. And he was actually quite close with our senior leadership at the time as well. The COO uh, was also a former uh, PayPal exec. And so it was really in our DNA from the onset where we knew that in order to succeed and survive and thrive, we really had to invest heavily in risk and fraud and trust and safety. And because that was part of our DNA, that enabled us to be at the table for product decisions, at the table when it came to figuring out strategy for particular products and things like that. And then also, and now I can say this, after consulting with many other companies in the kind of fintech space, it's not just the technology that's different, but it's more so it starts at the mindset is different. And 100%. And it, comes that, it comes through that <laughs> in kind of the DNA or the philosophy of these companies. Yeah, 100%. I would actually say, I mean, <laughs> something I can say several years later, too, like, I was really skeptical of Square. Like, I remember reading an article about it in Wired or something like that. Like, you know, Jack Dorsey had just finished Twitter, and, like, he's going to tackle payment processing. And I was like, are you serious? Like, you know, this guy doesn't know anything about payments. He doesn't know anything about risk. I was coming from a traditional payment processing background with, like, you know, four or five days of underwriting and, like, you know, it was very stereotypical, the two guys that did underwriting for the ISO I worked for, like, just kind of, you know, I don't know, I, they, they were very slow. <laughs> you know, they take like two hour lunches, just do to do. And the mindset of, of the traditional payment processor was just so different that it was hard for me to understand, like, how, you know, this guy in tech is going to figure out how to do it faster. But I mean, giving you guys credit and I mean, knowing you at that time, you guys were extremely like fast and you adapted to things and it was a mindset it wasn't like a oh i'm gonna take a two-hour lunch it was more like i'm gonna work 14 hour days for the rest of my life because you cared about it and you were you know you had that hunger that you know you have to have in a startup um and i think that because you guys did you and your team did such a great job at risk it, yeah some stuff got through early on absolutely but you guys really kept a lot of it out that's why it was successful yeah, if and that they was wouldn't have figured that out, one hundred percent. Yeah, and so you were saying that uh, was it Jamie Diamond or someone at Chase that was saying that like that was kind of in hindsight could have should have what they wish they would have been able to be more competitive with you guys. Yeah, it's a missed opportunity for them. We like we actually right? Square does have a, a, some of the initial investors are banks, and they were just like, oh sweet, if you want to take on this endeavor, like we'll help invest in this in terms of capital, but. They've they wanted to get into that space for a while, but for risk reasons, couldn't move on it. They didn't have the the mindset or the technology to really execute. Um, so mm -hmm. along came this startup with, you know, some kind of crazy ideas, and it's like, all right, well, um, we're going to give it a go. Well, I also wonder though if part of it was we're going to invest in our competition so that in the off chance that they're successful, we at least make money off of it. <laughs> oh yeah, that's I mean, <laughs> I from mean, an enterprise standpoint, that's the game. Right. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, I see it, you know, at the fintechs I work with as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, while yes, they do believe in that idea enough to put money in. I think that there's also a, well, you know, at least if we, you know, get <laughs> the crap beat out of us, at least we made some money off of it. <laughs> <laughs> so I have one more question around like trust and safety piece. And I think that this is something that Brett 
really has been trying to wrap his head around too. I mean, because it is so interesting to me to work with somebody who, you know, in their forties hasn't really ever worked in corporate America, but knows as much as he does about fraud. And so just like he can teach me so much about fraud and how fraudsters think, I sometimes try to be like, okay, look, it's not everybody at the company that believes this. It's the people at the top that, you know, are, are making decisions that aren't necessarily consistent with the people in fraud. Everyone that works for one company does not all have the same mindset, obviously. And that's a good thing. But my question is, and Brett might have a couple things to add on to this, but is it, I, I'm probably asking it in a much more like, you know, <laughs> PC way or like nicer, polished way. But is it... <laughs> There's probably a funnier way to ask it, but is it challenging to build trust when rules within your organization or the pe- the head, the leadership of your organization seem to work against that goal to build trust? Yeah, I think, well, I'd, I'd push back a little bit. I think everybody wants what's best for the company. And mm-hmm. that definition and how to get there may differ based on team and organization and people. But I've never met and a... perspective, pro- right? Oh, yeah. I've never met a a CEO or a product manager that wants to see their platform abused. They Mm -hmm. just don't. But in terms of the ways to not have that happen, there's there's multiple different paths to to get there. And one of the ways that I've found some success in order to get alignment is really starting with that North Star of like, what is the company's mission? So for, for Square, for example, it's, it was make commerce easy. Well, we can, the way that we can make it easy or easier is by enabling people to onboard seamlessly and get paid out quickly. Well, the one way or one of the few ways that we can enable that to happen is if we really have robust systems in place to make sure that we're paying out the right folks and we're, we're maintaining the integrity of our platform, especially when we're dealing with money. Like People are very, very sensitive when it comes to that stuff. And so the advice I give to uh, companies, uh, especially fraud teams or trust and safety teams that are looking to have more impact on the business is really to have more aligned goals with the high-level company objectives. What are the OKRs or the goals that you can set for your team that actually are in line and have dual incentives like win-win scenarios for your business or your team and the overall business? Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. I think it's also, you know, finding the, you know, the way that people think about things. I think that, you know, from a leadership perspective, you said you've never met a CEO that wants the company to fail. I would 100% agree with that. But what I have met many times is a CEO that doesn't think that there will be abuse on their system or that doesn't think that there (laughs) will be fraud or doesn't think it's possible or no one would ever steal from us or that's not going to happen, you know, and that That's that's why you hired me. So I can right? think about why that happens. Exactly. Yeah. Right. But if if somebody says, that's why you hired me, so you need to do this, 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 and this, and this, CEO is going to clam up and, be, and they're both going to be on either side. If you say, that's why you hired me and I care about this company too and I want it to make money too and here's how I'm helping you make money. Because, you know, when you're looking at fraud – for every, you know, $1 of fraud that comes through as a chargeback, it costs us $3. So that's the first part. Secondly, I'm looking at false positives. This is what I'm doing. Like, I think the best fraud managers I've seen that have the respect and the ear and the knowledge of their senior leadership in other areas are the ones who are able to explain it in a good way, who are able to spin it and explain it. And I think that's exactly what you're saying. It's aligned with the company goals. It's saying, look, like this is, like I knew a company that 
had one core product and they spun it in, okay, this is how much fraud we had. This is how much loss it was. This is how many of this one core product we have to sell in order to just break even. And that's with the profit margin, right? So if we have a dollar profit margin on each one of these things we're selling, then we have to sell like, you know, 50 million of them in order to cover the 50 million or, you know, the 20 million in fraud that we had or whatever. Um, you know, using it, being able to explain things in a in a really good way rather than like cramming it down their throat and telling them this is what they have to do is usually what I've seen be most successful. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. I think this comes down to knowing your audience and mm. who mm-hmm. who you're talking to from a executive level, from a uh, analyst level, and and down. And so knowing your audience, that's one of the lessons that I learned the hard way. It's like if you <laughs> <Me don't, too. laughs> yeah, if you don't know your audience, you're going to you're not going to be able to get done what you think is right. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. If you don't know what marketing cares about and you don't know what how they're measured in their success and how that translates with fraud and whatever, you're going to completely fail in having conversations with marketing because you're speaking two different languages. If you don't know what, you know, the head of engineering cares about with resources and things like that, you know, you're not going to be able to get that. It, I hear from people all the time like, you know, they need to be inviting me to meetings. I should be there. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> That's probably why they're not inviting you to meetings because you're, you know, <laughs> coming at it like that. And so I think that's you've obviously been very successful to navigate some pretty well, really cool and big brands. They're also very big and very, you know, there's a lot of teams that you had to navigate and figure out because there there's are there's a lot of tentacles for sure. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I've been to that Google office. I can bear, like, oh yeah. You don't even, like, you need a tour guide just to find one building and one meeting room, like, let alone figure out who does what and where. Brett, do you have any other questions that you want to ask? I know, I feel like we could literally do this for <laughs> another hour, and I do have so many more questions, and I want to ask a few more but I before we end, but I just want to make sure. No, I, I think, you I think, I think we covered everything. Well, I don't yet. <laughs> So there's a couple more things I wanted to uh, have you talk about, Kevin. I'm not going to go through my long list of fun questions that I'm kind of bummed about. But I think you've shared so much that I'm really excited about These questions about have all been fun so far. So oh, <laughs> I, I'm pleased. You're going to be such a good politician one day. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, no, but I do want to talk about your current role at SIFT because I love what you said earlier about democratizing the ability to fight fraud and also help trust and safety teams as well. Cause I know that a lot of what SIF does isn't just fraud prevention. It's also looking at content abuse and different areas of trust and safety. And that's something that sets them apart. What was it that made you want to go to SIF specifically and, and also just make a transition to a vendor? Yeah. So from a, uh, I'd say the, the main reason that I wanted to move to SIF was around the mission. So being that trust layer of the internet, uh, was a big draw for me. I'm, I've known Jason, the CEO, for a long time now, and I, I think as a human being, he's just an amazing person, and that's someone that I wanted to spend more time with as well. Uh, but from the mission of the company, that's something that personally uh, motivated me and that I could really get behind. The second piece was around the technology piece, where SIFT was founded back in 20. Uh, well, 2011, 2012 I think. or 11, because I know I uh, met Jason right then. So I'm like trying to remember. <laughs> I think it was. Yeah, I think the product launch was around 2012. Really, from the onset, he approached 
the problem differently. And he said, like, look, we're going to take machine learning and use this as a tool and try to make it as, as broad as possible to solve this particular type of problem. And at that point, nobody was doing it. The traditional fraud vendors out there were very, very, and many still are, rules-based. And he approached the problem very, very differently because he understood the adversarial aspect of what we're doing or what the industry is going through. And he saw this technology application as something that could really make a difference. And I think the industry certainly has moved in that direction since. So he had some foresight there to take on the right steps. And now SIFT is really doubling down on that in terms of moving into other forms of use, whether it's content, account takeover, fake accounts, uh, those types of things, and really providing a platform for all types of abuse. And that's something that I respect not only Jason for, but the company for in terms of willing to make these bold bets uh, and recognizing that the landscape landscape continues to shift and we need to move with it or risk kind of becoming obsolete. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've definitely seen, you know, companies that were really considered, you know, king of the hill five, six years ago, not be the same anymore because unfortunately the fraudsters have figured out linear rules pretty easily. Okay, so if you're going to review any order over $50, then I'm going to make a $45 one. Whereas, you know, machine learning kind of adapts a little bit more. I do think that what was always interesting to me when I first started talking to Jason and learning about machine learning (laughs) was that he had come from PayPal, right? And he built that system and PayPal was somebody that that really needed to figure out quickly and fast. I guess that's the same thing, but smartly and fast, I think is what I was meaning, how to fight fraud because there were people like Brett that were just really, uh, you know, exploiting the system. And so I think that that actually comes kind of full circle, right? So Brett comes in and really hits PayPal and Max and Jason both learned different lessons and, and all of that. Max at PayPal as well that you talked about that helped you guys at Square. Brett, you helped them learn lessons. And I mean, you kind of helped <laughs> found Sift and, and Square and so many other companies. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's, I don't we, think we you can build. get your shares from that. But <laughs> I'd say Sift could not have been built without people like Brett. That is a guarantee. Um, <laughs> That, that sounds like a backhanded compliment there. I no, actually think that, that sounded like a, I actually think that's a, like a ringing endorsement. Like you're going to show up on their doorstep and be like, where are my shares? Where are my founder shares? But, uh, just as a correction. So definitely Max Levchin worked at PayPal. He's actually one of SIFT advisors as well. Oh, is he? Yeah, I know he's. But Jason I know he's he did not work at PayPal. He, he's worked in other. Uh, oh, I thought he did. No. Oh, sorry about that. I thank you for correcting me. Was it his other partner that, that started it with him that works i thought that there was a paypal connection i could be completely wrong that's my fault sorry about that (laughs) but i know that he did work at you know other companies around that same time that That learned yeah 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 okay sorry about that that's my you know trying to keep the history of every company in my head straight (laughs) i do have a a question on on machine learning (laughs) yeah so, so you know, we're we're still kind of in the infancy of a lot of this kind of this this type of pro- uh, programming and everything. So, right now, what needs to be improved in the future for machine learning to be better than what it is? That's, That's a tough, tough one. question. <laughs> in terms of improvements. I mean, everyone's doing it, machine learning differently, right? So that's like saying, like, you know, what what can be done differently about 
you know, like a car. Well, is, are you talking about Toyota? Are you talking about Chevy? Are you talking about no, no, no. no. There, so there's a difference between AI and machine learning, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So, so as as we continue to get better with technology, we'll be moving more toward the AI arena yes. instead of just the basic machine learning arena. So, so right now, I mean, like you guys have a great company, you certainly do. But is every single thing? I mean, not everything is is real time there, right? I mean, so sometimes you get an answer, and you have to send a human in to look for other data or anything else like that. Yes, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And I think from a, I guess from a, a fundamental standpoint of what is going to make ML better, and maybe the next step is self learning models, which gets them more into that AI driven conversation. Right. Uh, it, it really comes down to the data available and what we are tracking. Um, in today's world, the, the basic stuff from a payment standpoint might be the dollar amount, the item, sure. the IP address, shipping, billing, et cetera. Uh, but there's a lot more, there's many, many more data points that can be leveraged to analyze essentially human behavior. And so when fraud, fraud is perpetrated, whether it's done by a human or a scripted bot, there are breadcrumbs and clues that are dropped along the way. However, in today's world, from a technology standpoint, from a human standpoint, there are gaps in that story. And as ML machine learning gets better, a lot of that's going to be predicated on how much data is not only ingestible, but also digestible. Uh, Oftentimes when I talk to companies, they claim they have a lot of data, but it's so sloppy in terms of (laughs) the architecture of it, not, it's not always digestible. And so whenever I talk with these companies, like how much digestible information do you have? And is it your essentially one source of truth where uh, oftentimes within companies they have silos by organizations or by product. And so you end up getting a lot of noisy data. And I think that's where ML does get tripped up because it doesn't have a source of truth to really learn from. And so I'd say the biggest or the next kind of area that can be improved is in, in terms of data extraction and digestion. Gotcha. Well, and I would especially agree with that because every company deals with data and handles their data so differently and machine learning is only going to be as good as the data that you have and the quality of it. And I mean, just even in what I do with, you know, doing chargeback analytics, every company I work with has very different types of data around their chargebacks. Um, And I can only give as much analysis about the root cause of their chargebacks as the data that they give me. If they only give me 10 you know, buckets uh, and identifiers of that chargeback, then I can only, and you know, analyze 10 of them. Whereas if they have, you know, 30 lines of data that are all different types of things, you can then dive in more. So I think that's what Kevin's talking about. I would say though, to, to your, you know, your question, original question, Brett, about, you know, is it, I would ask you, is it really a downfall of machine learning or any system to have some area where, it goes for human review because there's some really tricky stuff. Bad orders look like good orders. Good orders look like bad orders. And sometimes I think that you need that human element. I was going to say elephant (laughs) element (laughs) um, (laughs) to, to provide context to that order. So I wouldn't necessarily see that as a bad thing. What I would look at is the percentage of orders that are being sent to manual review. Right. Yeah, I would, I would, I would agree with you. I think that humans have a, a benefit and a detriment. In that, so so the mm-hmm. benefit, of course, is is having a human there with eyes on, able to see exactly what's going on. The human is able to do things that simply the machine cannot do yet, cannot. But at the same time, it's a human doing that. 
So criminals, that, that that's these gaps that criminals love to walk through. The criminal knows mm-hmm. he can't beat the system, and, and bar none, machine learning is head and shoulders above any type of rules-based system out there. But when you've still got the humans in there doing that, that's the hole, that's the gap that a criminal walks through at that point. And that's, that was kind of the question is, at, at what point do we start to see these gaps narrow and narrow and narrow to the point that hopefully the criminal can't squeeze himself through that gap? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, it's a tough question just because humans almost always will be the, the most exploitable or the weakest link in many of these cases. And that's something that we have to be very, very cognizant of just because when we create these systems, humans have their own baggage, their own, their own ideas, and they can... <laughs> they're subjective. <laughs> and they're subjective, and they can train models with their own biases, even unconsciously. And so that's something we need to be mindful of as well. Right. No, yeah, I think that that's a really good conversation and one that we could literally have for an entire episode because I think that there's you know a lot of perspective around that. And what I see is I think that what you said, Brett, about humans being both, you know, a positive and a negative, that's 100% right. Um, I mean, there's so many layers that go into this, right? Because it has to do with hiring, it has to do with what, you know, demographic and geography that a merchant is in and who they're getting, you know, there's so many different aspects to that. But I do think that from a consultant perspective, when merchants are asking me, and I mean, especially with the podcast, I get so many more people who trust me to ask me for, you know, suggestions on who to talk to. And I really am grateful for that because that's just such a good validation that I have given people the, you know, feeling that they can trust me. And I'm, I'm glad they know that. But I really look at, you know, machine learning as a way to actually cut down the human factor quite a bit. So if I'm talking to a merchant that has, you know, two to three people on their team that understand fraud that, you know, two of them have done it, analytics and manual reviews, and one of them knows strategy and knows how to write rules like in a linear rule system, then I might say like, yeah, you're, you know, you're okay to go with a linear rule system, um, especially if you're physical goods and, you know, small dollar, like there's so many other factors, but that would be, you know, yeah, that's, that's a good situation for that. But when I'm talking to a company who's pretty new, doesn't have anyone on staff that knows fraud, um, is in startup mode, so they need to be pretty lean. They don't really have time to hire somebody and train them on how to write linear rules, you know, in a in a rules engine. They don't have time to have anyone be able to look at the data. They don't have any resources to have anyone look at the data and go, okay, this is where we're losing. These are the factor, these are the attributes of the orders that we're losing. So I need to go write a rule in the system about that they don't have that, then I almost always suggest that they look at machine learning. And there are other companies that that do this. SIFT, I do think, to Kevin's point, was the very first one. Um, and they continue to improve. They haven't just like stopped on that plateau. And so I do think very highly of them. But I mean, full disclosure, and I think Kevin and I will still be friends after I say this, like there have been times I have said other company names uh, when, you know, asked for recommendations. Usually, you know, I I don't ever want to play favorites. And so I'm like trying to be, you know, very democratic and saying like, these are three. And I usually say like, here's, you know, three companies that do it. And I usually say like, full disclosure, I know the people at SIFT, I adore them, but like, I don't get anything out of this, you know, maybe cookies every (laughs) once in a while, but nothing, you know, it's not like if you send this person to us, we will send you this, you know, so that I, 
try to, you know, be Switzerland as much as I possibly can. It's hard when there's, you know, personal people that you just think are awesome. And because I've known, you know, Jason since he started Sift, I, I know a lot of you there and you guys hire some really awesome people. So it's not my fault that I like you all. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of them listen to our podcast too. So, you know, I definitely can't say anything. Bad. <laughs> Hi, Sarah <laughs> and Jeff. And yeah, we know them all. <laughs> this has been, I mean, extremely helpful and i think that our listeners get a peek into just how you know smart you are and how much experience you have and you really are a great resource for all the merchants that work at Sift or work with sift i feel like you know whether it's a new merchant who's coming on you know they can reach out to you and ask you questions um jeff who was on your team i'm not even gonna try to say jeff's last name but he was on your team at square you guys were like Mm -hmm. the dynamic duo and he is also, you know, kind of your, you guys have the same title, right? We do. Yeah. He's also a trust and safety architect. Yes, I know. I just think you guys are going to, you know, come in pairs everywhere. But Jeff's also an awesome resource. So, you know, if I would encourage merchants if they ever wanted to pick your brain. I mean, I, I hope I'm not flooding in your email box. But <laughs> <laughs> you're a really good resource. Or if you don't have an answer or the time because you are traveling a lot, you know people that do. And you're not the typical person that vendors that the merchants think of when they think of a vendor right because you are a merchant <laughs> yeah i definitely have and you're not spent, in sales <laughs> i've definitely spent more time as a merchant than as a vendor and i think one of the things that i enjoy about my, my role now is i get to talk with other other merchants and other e-commerce providers and share some of my stories in terms of and most of what i share is from personal experience it's not a something I learned from a textbook or right. heard from a, a third party. It's literally going through those pains and kind of sharing some of those scars. And I enjoy that. I, I love teaching and I love sharing experiences and hopefully it's for the better. Yeah. Well, and you do, to that point, you do speak at a lot of events. In fact, you're going to be uh, speaking at the same event we're speaking at in oh, about right. a month and a half um, at CMP Expo. I'm really excited about that. Do you mind taking just a minute or two to talk about who's on your panel? Because I think we, you and I put together a pretty kick-ass panel, if I say so myself. <laughs> we make a good team. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so the the panel is specifically on the evolution of, of fraud to more of a trust and safety mindset. And I'm helping moderate a, a panel. On that panel, we have the trust and safety head at um, Netflix, uh, another one from Poshmark, and another one from... Redbubble. Oh, Redbubble, thank you. <laughs> so. We had it, well, we, yeah, we, it, it changed a little bit this past week, <laughs> so that's why I give you grace. <laughs> but, and I uh, believe we'll have one more as well, probably, but yeah. I'm excited for that. Well, actually, so on the agenda, you're literally the next event after Brett and I speak. So Brett oh, wow. and I do the, yeah, so it's like, yeah, we're the opening act to your, uh, yeah. Sweet. Hardly. Your big premiere. But uh, yeah, so it'll be us, you know, doing the the podcast live. And then you are one of four sessions in the very first track that, or time slot right after us. So, I mean, there'll be like an hour, I think there's like an hour networking break or something, but yeah. So it'll be very fun. And then the next, yeah. And then lunch. And then the next one is Brett's session. I mean, that's gonna be one crazy day, but Brett's session where he's going to be, you know, like last year he bought somebody's social security number in the audience. So God only knows what he's going to do this year. (laughs) 
it's untelling, but it probably involves fake driver's licenses. Yes, you do have to <laughs> get your money's worth for that $900 you spent. Yes, I do. <laughs> oh, I shake my head at you a lot. Well, Kevin, I know your time is super valuable, and we've taken up a lot of it, not just this one time, but the two other times that we tried to record. But I cannot tell you how much I appreciate it. I mean, I probably had like... 20 other questions to be honest because <laughs> I always over prepare for things but I think we had a lot of really great discussions and I always learn something from you when we talk so thank oh, you likewise so, and thank you for inviting me into your podcast I, I love what you guys are doing and uh, you're great uh, <laughs> I've listened to I think almost every single one so the, the stories that you share the perspectives I, I really enjoy them and, and listening to them as well and so I get to learn something new as well Oh, thank you. That means a lot just because like, I feel like, you know, everything. So <laughs> nah, hardly, <laughs> but then again, you know, like we said at the very beginning, the second we feel like we know everything is the second we know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again so much, Kevin. I really appreciate it. Thank you guys. Hey, thank you. Well, that's it for our episode today. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've learned a lot. You know, we've got so many of these topics to cover to help protect you and your company from fraud, so please subscribe to the online broadcast to be alerted to when a new episode is out. And please tell your friends, rate and review wherever you can. And we want to hear what you love so far about the podcast, especially this particular episode, because we really like to talk to other people in fraud. We've been pretty clear that, you know, we don't want to make this interview thing a common, you know, all the time thing. But we do believe that there are a lot of awesome people in this industry that that know more about certain parts of this than we do. And so we want to highlight them, but want to hear, you know, what you thought of it and how we can keep improving and what topics you want to hear us discuss. You can find Online Fraudcast on Facebook or find us individually on LinkedIn. Until next time, stay informed, stay vigilant, and stay secure.